together to the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5 in the Pew Bible, page 1291, 1291. And the Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, has to address his covenant people about their sins, and we'll see that the topic of what the Lord has to say to Israel is quite similar in some respects to what James has to say to the church, the churches that he's writing to in our passage this morning, James 5. So we're going to read first Isaiah 5, the whole chapter. where the Word of God reads as follows. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it, will, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, 
who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the Holy One, the, Holy, the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So far the word of judgment over Israel in Isaiah 5, 3 and the inspired James writes this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate 
and merciful. That's as far as we'll go. Verse 12 is a, another kettle of fish. We hope to tackle that another day. But we'll focus on the verses 1 through 11. Are these rich folks he's talking about? Are they church members? Are they professing Christians? James addresses them in the second person plural, just like he addresses, clearly addresses members of the church all the way through this letter. He says there, you come now, you rich, weep and howl. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. He seems to address them as if they're sitting in the pew listening to this letter being read aloud. That's what they would have done in the churches with these letters. They would have read them aloud on a Sunday morning. Can it really be that these rich landowners, that's what we gather from verse 4, these are wealthy landowners who are cheating their workers, who are not paying them their wages, who are indulging themselves in luxury for their own pleasure. Can it be that these, these individuals are actually part of the body of Christ gathering with the church every Sunday? We might want to say, no, that could never be. But not so fast. Recall what we read from Isaiah 5. The Lord through Isaiah is speaking to his people there in that book, to the Israelites, to people even from Judah and Benjamin, the tribes that had remained loyal to the house of David. In other words, Isaiah is addressing the church, the body of Christ in those days. And what does the Lord see among his people? We read it, verse 7 of Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But here it comes. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. The Lord looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Bloodshed in the church. Oppression in the church. Among the people of God, the powerful were oppressing the weak, even to the point of murder. And these folks were wealthy in Isaiah 5. Money brings power, and the Lord has to warn them about that in verse 8 of that chapter. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. You see, they were buying up land, and they were crowding out the poor neighbors. It gets worse. Isaiah says, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The church of the day, the covenant people of God, were showing nothing but contempt for the Lord and His law and contempt for the weak and the vulnerable among the people of God. The, the powerful rich were perverting justice. They were taking bribes. They were trampling on the righteous, says Isaiah verse 23. So, when we read in James 5 about these wealthy rich, we should not ever think that the people James describes couldn't possibly be on the membership rolls of the church. They certainly were in Isaiah's day. 
And if you think to the days of Jesus, they were there too, weren't they? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were wealthy, who loved money and oppressed the poor. They were there in the Middle Ages, in the days of the Roman church, where the, the hierarchy of the church was rolling in dough while the paupers for members had to live hand to mouth. Even in Reformed church history, there have been times where rich landowners had the benches, the front benches of the church reserved for themselves, and they exerted a lot of influence over the minister and the consistory because it was up to them through their donations that the minister's stipend were paid. It's to our shame that these things are so. It's no secret that we today are living in a land of plenty here in Canada. And right here in Ancaster, we have our affluence too. Let's be honest. So we shouldn't miss the opportunity that the Holy Spirit puts before you and me this morning, brothers and sisters, and look in the mirror. Before we talk about anything or anyone else, look in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I using wealth money to exploit others or am I using what the Lord has given to bless others? Am I using wealth to gain influence for myself or am I using it to bring glory to King Jesus? Am I storing up treasure on the earth or am I storing up treasure in heaven as Jesus calls us to do? There's something else that James brings out in these, this passage. We need to learn to think about our money and our houses and our assets, our cottages and our boats or whatever we have. We need to all, always think about these things in light of the time, the time period in which we all live. What James calls in verse 3, the last days. He writes, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What's he talking about? Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that you and I, we are living right now in the last days of the world, the end of of the world is coming. It's an expression found elsewhere in the New Testament a number of times which describes the time period after Jesus ascended into heaven, the time frame from then until his return on the clouds, which, says the New Testament, can come at any time, any day. Christ himself said that many times in his parables, that no one knows the day or hour upon, uh, at which the Son of Man will come. So, says Jesus, be ready. Be ready every day. Live like Jesus could come back right now and be ready to welcome him with rejoicing. When the Bible calls this time period the last days, it's telling us that there is no more saving work for God to accomplish. This is different from the Old Testament period. That was not the last days. The Bible doesn't call that ever the last days. For in the Old Testament, the Messiah had yet to come to the earth. He had yet to do his saving work. 
He had yet to suffer and die and be raised to life. But that has happened now. The Lord Jesus has come. That's the key point in the history of the world. It's, it's like the central event in the history of the world. And now after the ascension of Christ, there's nothing more for Christ to do except gather in his, his elect. That's what he's doing now. But he doesn't have to come to earth and, and work out more salvation. When the last elect person is gathered in, and we don't know when that's going to happen, when the last one is gathered in, then the clouds will fly away, the, the sky will tear in two, and the Lord of glory will descend. That could happen at any hour of any day. And so, says James, basically, what are you doing hoarding up gold and silver property and stocks and bonds? What are you doing? That's the sense of verse 3. What, what sense does it make to be focused on accumulating riches for yourselves? What sanity is it to, to rob others of, of their wages in order to line your own pockets? What sense does it make to live for your own pleasure when at any second the judge could come back and you'll be held to account? James is sort of saying this, are you crazy? Do you know what's about to happen? Are you, are you nuts? When the judge shows up, all the things that you've accumulated for yourself, it will be evidence against you, he says. Your piles of gold, your padded bank account, your life of luxury, your cheating of your employees, it's all going to be marshaled against you in the courtroom of God. And look out. You're not going to escape that. So James, with this warning, is, is telling us, look, what you should do, what we ought to do, is to live our life, to handle our money, to deal with our workers, to treat our neighbors in such a way that when Jesus returns as the judge, he won't condemn us to hell for being fools, but he'll commend us to his Father for being faithful servants. That's what we want to hear, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we have to aim for. Now, while we take the warning of the first six verses for ourselves, it does seem clear that James has in mind powerful, rich unbelievers outside the church community who are hammering on the faithful, poor Christians inside the church community. Two things point to this. First of all, in all six of those verses, James speaks language of condemnation for the rich. There's no call to repentance and there's no hope for change. Second, there is a clear contrast in verse 7 with the true believers. James switches gears in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, my brothers. The rich, this is what's going to happen to you, but my brothers, you be patient. That's a contrast. So the oppressive rich are contrasted with the sincere Christians of the church. 
But then you might ask, well, why does James then address rich unbelievers who are outside the church if they're never going to hear this letter? I mean, they're not sitting in the pews every Sunday, right? So what sense does it make to speak to them directly? Well, the answer is, it's a way to comfort and encourage the persecuted believers inside the church. James is adopting a style of speaking much like the prophets of old. Isaiah, for example, in some of his prophecies, would speak to foreign nations. Foreign nations would never actually get Isaiah's letter or his book. They would never hear his condemning prophecy of them, like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Moabites. So it's a literary device to make the point as effective as it can be for the audience. And James knows that his audience is the afflicted, the hammered, persecuted believers who are being so downtrodden by these powerful rich. So in their hearing, as it were, he addresses those powerful persecutors and he pronounces God's judgment over them. James, as it were, he does what the afflicted poor man is not able to do. He tells off the rich bullies and he does it in the name of the Lord. And he proclaims that those rich bullies will surely get their comeuppance, their just desserts, and doing so would bring great encouragement to the oppressed and to the troubled hearts in the pew. So verses 1 through 6, it's actually, first of all, a message of hope for the hurting, for the afflicted. That really comes to light in verse 7 and following. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. I, wanna, I want you to notice the reason and zero in for a moment on the reason James gives why we should be patient and how much attention he gives to it in this paragraph. The reason is the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ who will come back on the clouds to judge the living and the dead. James mentions the person of the Lord Jesus several more times in the following verses. comes in verse 8. Establish, or we could say, strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. comes back in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. We shouldn't over, overlook what James is doing here. Three times James mentions the coming back of the Lord Jesus as judge. And then notice that he adds to that, James does, several more mentions of the Lord's name in verses 10 and 11. Now, when you compare that to the earlier chapters in this letter, it's quite a contrast in all of chapters 1 through 4, we find only five references to the Lord Jesus in, in all those four chapters. But here now, in these few verses, we have a barrage of references to Christ and to his imminent return. And the message is this. The point of that is this. As we go through suffering, 
And now we're going to broaden it out to what James wrote in chapter 1, to the trials of various kinds, not just persecution. As we go through all manner of suffering, as we are in that stretch of hard times and our hearts are troubled, then more than ever, we need to set our eyes on the Lord Jesus. We need to understand that He is aware of our affliction. We need to understand that He is present with us in our difficulty, and especially, James says, we need to be aware that He's coming back. He's coming back to set everything right. The Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming. So take courage and strengthen your hearts in the day of trouble. Be patient, says James. That's not easy, is it? He knows it's not easy because he repeats it several times. Second time in verse 7, a third time in verse 8, you also be patient. Be patient like the farmers, James says. And he uses an analogy there. Farmers always have to be patient. They can do a lot of work in the spring to prepare the ground and plant the seed, but then they have to wait. They can't make the seed grow. They can't, of themselves, bring the crop to, ripe, to become ripe. They have to wait, farmers do. I know there's some farmers in our midst from years ago, so you will know what this is all about better than I. Well, in the land of Israel, back in Bible times, farmers had to wait and depend on the Lord even more because they had a lot less available to them. And what they needed along the way for the crops to mature and actually come to, to a, a plentiful crop is what James calls here in verse 8, 7, the early and the late rains. The early and the late rains. Well, in that climate of Israel, the land of Israel, it's a fairly dry, almost desert-like climate. So rains that would fall just before the farmers would work up the fields were very welcome rain, uh, welcome because otherwise the soil would be too hard-baked and very hard to turn over. And then later on, when the rains, the rains that would fall just when the plants were, were ready to, to mature and, and come into the, the, their fullness, they needed that extra moisture in order to make that happen. So those later rains were looked for too. They were prayed for. So James is saying, just as the farmer patiently, trustingly looks to the Lord, and prays to the Lord to provide needed moisture on the way to the day of harvest, so you and I, brothers and sisters, are to patiently look to the Lord Jesus and pray to Him in faith to provide sustenance, strength, encouragement along the way until the day arrives of our full deliverance from all oppression, all misery, we need the early rains and the late rains, too. 
For whoever and whatever is oppressing us, whatever is causing our hearts to be troubled, those people and those things will be dealt with once and for all on the day the judge comes back. In this life, true believers are very often on the short end of the stick, subject to oppressors of one kind or the other. The amount of persecution against Christians in the 20th and 21st century surpasses all the centuries before that. Did you know that? Around the globe, more Christians are persecuted today than they ever were. And if it's not human oppressors, we often are confronted with all different forms of misery, broken relationships that have deteriorated, or a body that is breaking down, or hearts, our hearts can be troubled by mounting sin in the life of someone close to us, a family member or friend, or the very sins in our own flesh can beat us down so frequently. We often feel powerless. We often are powerless. But our text is saying to us, your Lord in heaven sees. He sees it all. He knows it all. And your Lord will bring relief from your suffering and full salvation from sin on the day of his return. So take heart. Take courage in that and wait for him patiently. Wait for him with a quiet heart. Every evildoer will get justice, and every source of evil in this world will be destroyed, and every form of oppression will be cast out of this world. That day is coming, so be strong in the Spirit of Christ. Until then, pray for his return like a farmer and brandish, or banish anxiety and impatience from your heart, and as it were, take a seat. Take a seat and, and, and watch what the Lord will do. Watch how the Lord will provide you the early rains and the late rains so you can keep going. You can put another foot in front of the one before it until the day of complete redemption arrives. And while we're waiting for that day of the Lord to come and when every form of oppression will be dealt with, let's also be certain of the blessing that our God has in store for us. For at the same time that, Jesus, or that James issues a warning, or I should back up, one of the motivations to be patient is that judgment is in the hands of the Lord. That's not a burden you and I have to carry. We, we never have to and we never should seek vengeance. Now, at the same time, James issues a warning in verse 9 that we not end up on the wrong side of judgment day, that we not end up on that wrong side by dissing our neighbors. comes there in verse 9, stands out a little bit. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James is picking up on that warning we saw last time in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, that we are not to speak ill of others, let alone another brother and sister in Christ. 
We're not to turn on our brothers and sisters. We're not to start our tongues a wagon, for then we break the law and we make ourselves above the law. We put ourselves in the judge's chair, and that's not, never going to happen. We're not above the law, and we have no right to that chair. And Judgment Day will show that plain as day. As foolish as it is for anyone to store up silver and gold and be all about living a life of pleasure while Judgment Day is just around the corner, so also it is foolish to badmouth your fellow Christian. What do you think the Lord Jesus will say to you and me upon his return if that's been our pattern? Instead, our marching orders are clear. Love your neighbor as yourself and tame your tongue. In fact, James is telling us here, don't concentrate on what you think are the weaknesses and failings of your neighbor. Don't, don't put your focus there. Focus your attention on the Lord Jesus who's coming back and, and focus on the reward the blessing that he's going to bring when you've patiently endured the suffering of your trials. James says in verse 10 that we should take an example from the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name, prophets who had to patiently suffer for the Lord's sake. You can think of Isaiah or Jeremiah, both of whom preached basically to a deaf Congregation to, to people who, who refused to listen and refused to repent. And those people eventually turned on the prophets in anger and hatred, going so far as to imprison Jeremiah. They nearly killed him, and later he was killed. But through it all, he and Isaiah and the other prophets, they, they prayed and they endured in the strength of the Lord, waiting for the day of redemption to come. We should be like that, says James. And James mentions also Job in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Compassionate and merciful. How exactly was the Lord compassionate and merciful to Job? Well, there's two things that we can pick up on. Going right back to James chapter 1, Job, through his incredibly difficult trials, he had his faith tested, didn't he? Like ore in a furnace of fire. And through all that dark, dark time, Job's faith produced, as James said, it produced steadfastness. Job learned to trust God through thick and thin over the long haul. That's steadfastness. And steadfastness had its full effect in Job's life because through the book of Job, you can see Job's struggle. Job had his questions, lots of them. He had questions for God, questions about God. But in the end, he kept his faith and he learned to fully trust the Lord even though he didn't know why God was doing what he was doing. 
He'd never got told why the Lord had let these things happen to him. It was enough for Job. By the end of the process, it was enough for Job that God is God. That the Almighty has the world in the palm of his hands and everything lies securely in his hands. And so at the end of the book, Job stops objecting. He says, I put my hand over my mouth. I'm, I'm, I see it, Lord. You are God, not me. That's enough. Job quietly trusted. His, his troubled heart became calm. And his faith, stronger than ever. So that was one blessing that God gave Job in, in his compassion. And the other blessing was relief and restoration. For at the end of Job's suffering, God brought about a great renewal so that Job's family was larger than before, had more kids. His riches were greater than before and his reputation in the land was stronger than ever. The Bible says in Job 42 that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than at his beginning. That's something we should keep our eyes out for too, brothers and sisters, that after suffering, after trials, after this, this life of difficulty and trouble and persecution comes rejuvenation and joy and prosperity. The Lord Jesus said it as well, Matthew 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. That's what he's talking about. After the day, days of tribulation will come days of happiness. The Lord may grant that already in this life like he did to Job, but without a doubt it will come to all of God's children in the next life. So brothers and sisters, take courage in your Lord your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his return is at hand, could come any moment. And with his return comes both the end of all forms of oppression and the fullness of all forms of joy. Amen. Let's sing together about trusting the Lord and even through times of difficulty, even when God's hand is upon us in discipline. That's hymn 14, the stanzas 1, 8, 9, and 10, in wrath, remember mercy. <laughs>